0: My name's Justin Clu and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're getting in the gutter. With the, I guess, ultimate gutter auteur, Andy
1: Milligan. I think it's fair to say that when we use that expression, gutter auteur, this is who we're talking about. (laughs) Yes. This is the definitive one. I mean, people could also uh, apply to somebody like Ed Wood as well. Sure. I think we've used it to talk about Sean Costello in recent months. But Andy Milligan is the man for you if you think Ed Wood is just a little too mainstream.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you want something a little bit more confrontational, something that's in your face and... A pure individual expression of one
1: very conflicted soul. Last week, I mentioned this quote that John Waters said about Andy Milligan. He said that his career poses the question, can a genius be untalented? I would
0: disagree with that statement. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think Andy Milligan is talented in the very specific thing that he
1: does. Well, he's unique. He's an individual. He has no um, command of the rules of film grammar.
0: Or he does, and he's just not interested in them. Like, he... Sees things very much like this is how they're supposed to be done, (laughs) and he approaches in a very repetitive, normalized way. That I'm not going to change any of the way that I put these things together.
1: His films, which include such titles as "The Man with Two Heads," "The Rats Are Coming," "The The Werewolves Werewolves Are are here. Here."
0: Um, the Body Beneath, The bl- Bloodthirsty Butchers, Torture Dungeon,
1: Surgical.
0: But I would say every title that we've mentioned are some of his lesser films, the ones that didn't actually interest him that much, but he made because he knew he could have a meager return on them.
1: Probably his best movies include Flashpot on 42nd Street, mm-hmm.
0: or The Nightbirds, the Seeds. Yeah, or Vapors.
1: I would not hesitate to call Andy Milligan one of my favorite directors. Really? i mean he's somebody who i'm deeply fascinated by Mm -hmm. um that said even the best andy milligan movies flirt with being unwatchable
0: oh yeah definitely (laughs) the worst of them are 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 unwatchable i mean the worst andy milligan films are talky and boring and you just can't wait until they're
1: over and the best andy milligan films They're talky and boring. But they're also (laughs) intense.
0: It's like people screaming at each other. Um, The emotions start at like 11 and just move to
1: 12 somehow. They're actively unpleasant to Mm -hmm. watch. They're full of shouting and violence, insanely wordy, disorienting camera work, and with subject matter that is hideous, uh, incest, rape, just (laughs) evil people. Mm -hmm.
0: And the thing about Milligan is that he also represents like... The ultimate dream of people that think about, oh, if I could just go on to 42nd Street, what kind of movies would they be playing? Because they'd be playing these Andy Milligan horror films. I mean, Stephen King, in his uh, book Dance Macabre, his uh, collection of essays on movies and horror fiction, talks about one of Milligan's uh, movies. And he's like, oh, a moron made this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I've always been fascinated by Milligan's movies, just imagining them playing on 42nd Street. Mm-hmm. like because the, these movies are in some ways as rock bottom as you've ever had be like theatrically released.
0: Almost all of his films were made for under $10,000, which is absurd when you consider that he also shot them on film because that was the only format available to him.
1: Often on short ends. Yes. uh, Often with a 16 millimeter sound on film camera. Yeah, newsreel camera. (laughs) Held himself. (laughs) And you watch some of them. And oh, and by the way, considering the impoverished conditions they were made, would you believe that many of his movies are elaborate period pieces? (laughs) With
0: crazy costumes because uh one of those slices of milligan's life that is almost too absurd to be real is that he was a dressmaker and before he got into movies he actually
1: owned a dress shop so i said i was fascinated by the fact that these movies actually played in theaters because i sometimes wonder like did the grindhouse audience how do they stand did they for like this? rebel <laughs> how do they stand for some of this stuff i know that Michael J. Weldon in his Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film, which was written in the 80s when Milligan was still alive, one of the reviews, he just says, if you're an Andy Milligan fan, there's no hope for you.
0: (laughs) Well, because you go into these films that have these lurid posters and ad copy, it's like torture dungeon, like you'll see stuff that has never been put onto the screen, and then you go and it's essentially like prop dummy hands and just paint blood splattered all over the place. So you can understand, like, the genre-hungry horror fan seeing these and being like, what the hell?
1: <laughs> I think what I find most fascinating about his movies... Okay, there's sorry, there's so many things I find fascinating about his movies, including the fact that they're the product of, of a deranged vision. But they are, like, real howls from the gutter. They mm-hmm. are from the gutter uh about the gutter for the gutter and they're by a man who like like you watch these movies and some of them have certain superficial comparisons with say the films of john waters mm-hmm. but john waters comes across as so much more of a careerist next to andy <laughs> milligan
0: andy milligan wants to burn every bridge as he walks over it like
1: andy milligan is this like walking open wound of a person mm-hmm. who's just spilling these Uh, you know, he apparently had a very hard life and he's spilling all this trauma onto the screen. And there's something compelling about that. Do you
0: think you would find it compelling if you came to his work and did not know about his life? Like if you stumbled upon one of his movies, for example, Bloodthirsty Butchers.
1: Well, I'm actually glad you asked because Bloodthirsty Butchers was the first of his movies I ever saw. Mm -hmm. And I was compelled by it. Oh wow! I I found it hard to watch. And as I was watching it again today, uh, I still found it hard to watch. I mean, basically it just sort of tickled me the first time I saw it because it's so it's, so it's his version of the Sweeney Todd story. It's just so cheap. It it's, cheap beyond comprehension so i was quite delighted by that and i wanted to know more about him
0: and what's amazing about the movie is that you assume that it's like people in staten island doing accents but he was in britain during that time yeah yeah (laughs) so it's like his aesthetic is so pure that even when he has the real stuff you assume (laughs) that he's faking it on screen (laughs)
1: Andy Milligan does have a fascinating life, though. It was documented in an essential biography by Jimmy McDonough called The Ghastly One. Uh, He was born in Minnesota in 1929, had an unhappy childhood. You'll often see in his movies the archetype of the domineering matriarch and it seems that andy himself had a difficult relationship with his own mother seems that's that's Uh, all
0: he ever talked about
1: (laughs) uh it is possible that he was abused Mm -hmm. uh, sexually by his mother we don't know that for sure
0: i mean that's extended to his dislike and hate of essentially all women that he knew in his life but at the same time he also hated everybody
1: in his life yeah he seems to have been a hard guy to get along (laughs) with. also seems yeah seems (laughs) Uh, He served in the Navy for four years as a young adult. Uh, I think that's where he really came into his sexuality.
0: Yes, because Uh, Andy Milligan was openly gay, mm -hmm. but a very specific kind of gayness in that he had no interest in anyone that wasn't like masculine and dominating as a man. Everybody else he
1: saw was weak, so he didn't like that kind of um, limp-wristed stereotype. Mm-hmm.
0: Even though that character of the drag queen appears a lot in his movies, so and there seems to be some affinity there. Even though that people in his life was were like, oh no, yeah, he
1: hates that stuff. He moved to New York City in 1951 as a young man, and as you mentioned, he did open a dress shop there. Uh, one of the I- important Elements of his early life was uh, beginning in 1960. He worked at uh, an off-off Broadway theater called the Cafe Chino, which mm-hmm. is sort of a semi-legendary stage venue. Oh,
0: man. Reading about it in Jimmy McDonough's book is just hellish. <laughs> like...
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems to have been this like theater of cruelty. Yes. <laughs> I mean,
0: Amy Milligan's um, entire art is also filtered through this like sadomasochistic
1: Outlook on life that he had as well, which he was very open about. The Cafe Chino, I guess it was Andy Warhol adjacent. Oh yeah, but Andy Milligan hated... Andy Warhol. Right. He
0: thought the idea of like fifteen minutes, superstars, trash. Andy Milligan was one of those guys who's like, I have no time for people that want to be famous or who wanna be intellectual. Also, if you're trying to um just squeak by through life and do drugs and drinking, I hate that as well. Basically, if you're not me, you suck.
1: Well, all of Andy Warhol's art is including his films, are kind of cold and mm-hmm. distant. Whereas Milligan, Hot. Down and dirty. <laughs> yeah. And uh, apparently he did... Th- he, he was a playwright and he wrote a number of his own plays for Café Chino, but he also did a number of Jean Genet plays. And apparently he did some rather radical reinterpretations of them. He was... I guess you could say that he was an abusive director. Uh,
0: Yeah, he was. I mean... He would hurt
1: his actors.
0: And the actors would also hurt themselves, like physically punching themselves on stage. The
1: The New York police would notoriously, like come over to the cafe because they would hear just blood curdling screams mm. records reports of violence uh but no that's the play yeah that's <laughs> but right where does the play end and where does the abuse <laughs> begin?
0: and after plowing his way through this theater he worked at another theater that supposedly when they um tried to shut him out he ripped up all the seats with a knife what a guy yep
1: his film career began in the mid-60s his first film from 1965 is called vapors it's a 32 minute avant-garde film about uh gay life in new york four years before stonewall
0: and a gay life that milligan himself said he had no interest in it was actually written by somebody else
1: And this movie, you know, it has some of the technical imperfections of the rest of his movies, but if you watch it, it suggests a whole different career that he could have had. A softer touch. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's sort of a a sweet movie. Uh, It's set at a bathhouse, the the famous St. Mark's bathhouse, and it is about this uh, young man who goes to the bathhouse and he befriends this older man who's stuck in a loveless marriage and they spend you know uh, an evening just talking to each other in their stall and then of course later, it ends with this young man being humiliated. All the surviving versions are censored, but it ends with a guy walking into the young man's bathhouse stall uh, with his big cock. Uh, Andy Milligan
0: out. said it was the only reason that he wanted to make the movie. But you know, it's essentially Milligan's in the mood for love. <laughs> an yeah. Unconsummated uh, relationship on screen.
1: <laughs> it's an interesting short. It's genuinely atmospheric. I think the bathhouse depicted in grainy black and white i think this might have been shot on eight millimeter it looks actually kind of otherworldly probably accidentally Mm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but it there is something about it that captures the atmosphere of you know what i imagine was the covert nature of bathhouse living
0: so this movie vapors it played to kind of two audiences because it somehow Crossed the line and played in a few art house theaters, but it also made its way to the sexploitation circuit.
1: It was marketed as, and I quote, a major homosexual film comparable to Kenneth Anger's Fireworks, which, mm-hmm. again, imagine. Maybe there's an alternate universe where Andy Milligan became the next Kenneth Anger.
0: No, but instead Andy Milligan met William Mishkin and they set off on a journey of co-exploitation. Now, who was William Mishkin? He was a film distributor and he was known in the 42nd Street film world as kind of like the lowest of the low. David F. Friedman said that Mishkin would get all the like European uh, hairy
1: armpit movies is Uh, what he called them. This relationship between Milligan and Mishkin, you know, Milligan made many, many, many movies for Michigan, most of which are now lost.
0: Yeah, like 8 out of 11 of them are just gone. Mostly because Michigan's son just threw them all out in like 2001 because he's like, they're taking up room what are we going to do with them? They're never going to make any money. (laughs) Heartbreaking. Yep. And Andy Milligan himself lost two of them because he saw no real value in like re-releasing them or anything like that.
1: Most of the Andy Milligan movies we have now we have because of the conservation efforts of uh, Nicholas Winding Refn.
0: That's right. And something weird who found a lot of the negatives before they were about to be thrown out. I mean, I wish we had all these early movies because the sexploitation films feel like they're closer to what Andy Milligan wanted to make, which were really heightened dramas or melodramas to be more specific. While the horror stuff that he did later on was not on his wavelengths and he did not like making those movies. Yeah,
1: well, we have one of his sex exploitation movies from Michigan uh, from 1968. It's called Seeds. Mm-hmm. And this, until recently, was only available in a heavily butchered version called Seeds of Sin.
0: Which inserted
1: like whole like porn scenes into the plot. <laughs> Just lengthy soft core couplings with other actors mm-hmm. but just like close ups of the body. but thank god uh, I
0: think Vinegar Syndrome are the people that restored it Vinegar
1: Syndrome did a very impressive restoration mm-hmm. of it and it's apparently one of their lowest selling blu-rays
0: what if you're listening to this and you have any interest in Andy Milligan you get out there and you buy seeds
1: because seeds oh my god I mean this movie I mean, it is it is close to unwatchable, but it's also, Ugh, I love it so it's also a masterpiece.
0: I have to say that <laughs> not only is it as claustrophobic as most Andy Milligan's films, because when you think of him as a visual stylist, it's like the camera's always tight on people. Sometimes when it's like two people talking, the camera will be crooked so he can get both of them in frame.
1: <laughs> yeah, imagine a movie like John Waters' Female Trouble, but with the style cranked up maybe twice as much and, and with no irony.
0: And Seeds has the advantage of also being shot in like pristine black and white. Mm. So like it just pops off the screen in a different way than his color pictures do. And I think black and white works better for Milligan because there is that intensity there.
1: Yeah, and it's shot at Milligan's Staten Island Victorian mansion. Hollywood Center or something like that? Yeah, he somehow he owned, I mean, Milligan was not a wealthy man, but mm-hmm. he did own this mansion uh, and it looks awful I mean, yeah. it's just a hideous like clashing wallpaper dilapidated just
0: and like and they shot it I guess they must have shot it like in the fall or the spring because all the trees have like no leaves on them it just looks awful the movie takes place during Christmas as well so make it a Christmas movie and like most of Milligan's pictures it's about like a family coming together and just hating on each other
1: yeah it takes place over a weekend reunion which is ruled by yes a domineering matriarch, who is like if Norman Bates's mother actually was alive, but <laughs> was still the skeleton. Yeah, that's uh, true. You know, she's wheelchair bound, <laughs> she's alcoholic, and she's constantly yelling at all her family, you're bad seeds, you're nothing but bad seeds.
0: You look at a movie like this, and you wonder, in a different climate, could Milligan have gotten that, like, John Cassavetes, like, uh, just... like, cinema verite cred behind him. Yeah. (laughs) Because, like... This, like some of uh, John Cassavetes' uh, self-produced films, has that kind of, like, you're in the moment as it's happening. Stuff is kind of out of focus. The camera just catching things out
1: of the corner of the lens. Yeah, it's like, it's like you know, husbands and wives, that, <laughs> yeah. that
0: visual style. Well, Milligan, he used to love to do the camera move, swirl the camera, where he would end the scene with, like, kind of, like, spinning in the air, like, pointing to the ground because the movies were so cheap. He could not pay for any opticals. The only thing he could do for transitions were fades done in camera. So if he wanted to get out of a scene uh, the way that he would do it is he'd just, like I said, just spin around the camera, which gives it also an insane intensity you see in no other movie. Oh, it's- God. It,
1: like, it feels like being trapped in the brain of a madman. <laughs> it, it's got a full cast of characters, including... Um, you know, brothers and sisters who have had incestuous relationships. That's right. Plural. (laughs) Uh, There's a young, troubled teenage boy who's been kicked out of the service for being gay and the priest uncle who abused him. There is talk of botched abortions. Uh, I'm just anything of the ice the kitchen sink is thrown in. So many unpleasant things. Oh, and by the way, there's a serial killer loose. (laughs) He's killing them all one by one.
0: (laughs) But I think that because it doesn't have that, I guess, tawdry feel of his later color horror films, that serial killer part works differently than it does. And
1: yeah, the later color horror films like Bloodthirsty Butcher... Like, they they it's, have lulls. Yeah,
0: you feel that when he was making something like Seeds, he was putting his all into it. Mm. Like, this is Milligan, like, uncut. While later on, he's made a lot of movies. He essentially has a pretty good idea of how much money he's going to make. Almost nothing. So why try that hard? Mm. Like, it, he doesn't need to put all his passion in it, like you get in Seeds.
1: I do have a fondness for bloodthirsty butchers, though. Uh, I, I think he probably had a hard time with it this week, right? I, it's so boring. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> it is boring, but just the idea of Andy Milligan making a Sweeney Todd movie on $10,000. You know who's a big Andy Milligan fan? Matt Farley. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear that. Well, yeah. Matt, Matt Farley, of course, would like Andy Milligan because Milligan's movies are all about the boring, talky parts and yeah, exactly. the violence. He
0: is probably the only fan along with Tom Scalzo and Charles Roxburgh, his two pals who do shock marathons of the rats are coming. The werewolves are here because they just like mm, they love those like weird kind of character quirks in just a sea of nothing happening.
1: Yeah. So the first time I saw Bloodthirsty Butchers, I thought it was one of the movies he made in Staten Island, Mm. even though it actually was shot in Britain with British actors. And some of that is just because like the people that he got to be in his movies some of them were trained actors, most of them weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them were just people that he picked up at the butcher shop or uh boyfriends that he had or this or that. And they're also they're all just strange, <laughs> yeah, just looking weird and looking acting people yeah. and seeing them uh, wandering around speaking in these British accents. Or Nicholas Wendy Reffin just discovered and released an unfinished uh southern gothic yeah. <laughs> that milligan made called the house of seven bells his gone with the wind <laughs> yeah or, or his the beguiled yeah and this one was shot in staten island and it's full of all the millions actors you know dressed <laughs> dressed in their reconstruction era best going i do declare <laughs> i and love it, and it's so funny
0: i love all of the costumes in the milligan film like all of his horror films are period pieces (laughs) it seems like the only way he could get through them is by applying another artistic passion that he had Mm -hmm. like making dresses and costumes and that's how he could get through them but it also creates this hilarious contradiction where it's like a bunch of people from staten island walking around milligan's mansion (laughs) that just looks awful wearing these kind of like weathered and terrible dresses that have seen much better days. There's a
1: great scene in House of Seven Bells where it's like a sewing circle of just southern bells. And they're just in this like empty room in, I guess, Milligan's house, this big hallway. And it just looks like any house from the 1970s but you've got all these women dressed in their southern finery <laughs> and the, co- the like it's it's otherworldly mm-hmm. i use that word too much on this podcast but it really <laughs> it's is your go-to. it's your go to it's just such a strange image
0: now fleshpot on 42nd street uh, which is the last milligan film that we both watched i think what's interesting about it is that it's probably his best film mm-hmm. and for a long time it was lost in a complete version. Again, I think vinegar syndrome saved it and yeah. released it.
1: Yeah, I saw an incomplete one that uh, something, something weird, weird forgot, put yeah. out many years ago, which was also just very hard to watch. Yeah, and very dark, too. Yeah.
0: I mean, Milligan's um, films are famous for the optical soundtracks being almost unlistenable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like the vinegar syndrome release is as good as it's going to look. And sound. And it's actually pretty good. And at this point, I believe that Milligan is
1: still working for Mishkin. Yeah, this one's 1973. So,
0: just to do like a real fast forward through his career, after making those sexploitation films, Milligan started uh, making horror pictures and then he went to London. And then he uh, had a contract with a producer to make Nightbirds. And then that contract kind of exploded uh, during their second picture, The Body Beneath. And then he went back to Michigan, and Mishkin funded more films in London before he finally ended up back again in New York, Staten Island. And he continued to make films for Mishkin, who continued to pay him almost nothing for his stuff.
1: And it's not like uh, Milligan had anywhere else to go. No, he did Because no other distributor would employ this man.
0: Well, like David Friedman in uh, uh, the Jimmy McDonough book talks about about how he had no idea how Mishkin booked such sweet dates at theaters mm. <laughs> like there was one theater that everybody wanted to play and somehow Mishkin was able to book like all of Milligan's pictures there and at the end of the day a lot of them made money because Mishkin was a real canny salesman mm. he could sell that sizzle even they, though that there was no steak
1: they had good titles they had good posters mm. bloodthirsty butchers yeah, <laughs> know torture
0: know what, dungeon what do you want yeah <laughs> and then something like Fleshpot on 42nd street
1: Uh, Michigan actually forced Annie Milligan to shoot some hardcore that they put into the movie. I mean, this is the one that really feels like it emerged from the gutter to the point where it opens with this shot of 42nd street a camera traveling along the deuce
0: an and anomaly for a milligan film the kind of a uh, gorilla style shooting
1: and there's it actually feels because the camera is crooked and mm-hmm. it's sort of at knee level and it really feels like the camera is somehow like <laughs> rising up from from the muck and the filth and the cum go home
0: camera you're drunk yeah <laughs> uh
1: and eventually the camera finds laura cannon who stars uh, as the titular fleshpot. Uh, she's a prostitute and uh, just all around survivor uh, mm. in Times Square.
0: Laura Cannon, an actual porn actor, I think probably most famous from
1: uh, everyone's favorite Sean Costello film, Forced Entry. That's right, and she also reunites with the star of that film, Harry Reems. Very late, charming in this movie. Later in this one, yeah. Uh, Laura Cannon, uh, as we join her, she's uh, fleeing from her current loveless relationship, a purely transactional relationship. Uh, You know, she steals some stuff from his apartment and gets out. And she uh, her only friend in the world is this drag queen played by Neil Flanagan, Mm -hmm. who gives actually rather a touching performance. I I think
0: think, um, all three of the main players give fairly touching performances, even somebody like Laura Cannon, who in this movie it's almost like her life documented. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a Rialto Report uh, podcast episode where they kind of like hunted down like what she's been doing since that time. And essentially her character was not as destitute as she is in this movie, but it was a variation of that. Like she could have been a Broadway actor and she just never made it. So she kind of struggled throughout her life.
1: So the Laura Cannon character is a, a street fighter, a survivor. And one day she just happens upon this really nice finance guy played by Harry Reems. Who falls in love with her, sees the good in her, takes her to his home in Staten Island, and it seems this might be her Prince Charming, you know?
0: Uh, Before we get to the shocking end that Milligan cannot help but insert in the last two minutes of the movie, (laughs) I should point out that this is one of Milligan's most empathetic movies as well. There's a lot of scenes where the character's just hanging out at the bar, just chit-chatting. There's that kind of uh, angry kind of dialogue jumping between a lot of the women. But there's also kind of, I don't know, a a softer touch than he usually uh, shows. While every character shows themselves as well to be like backstabbing and evil, you also get a sense of friendship between them. that they're all struggling and they're trying to figure out a way to get out of the situation
1: and you sense that the movie doesn't hate these characters mm. like it normally does yeah
0: because <laughs> even at the end when um you know you can see the movie but it essentially turns as bad as it could for the character <laughs> almost as if milligan like making the movie is like well i
1: can't just have a happy ending yeah <laughs> this
0: is crazy so we have to have this out of nowhere thing to happen and then essentially the worst final shot you could have
1: but yeah as you say the three central players they're all quite charming i, I think flanagan gives the best performance but the other two they, they there seems there's something sort of authentic about them mm-hmm. and uh, you know there's a, there's a scene where Harry Reams takes Laura Cannon in a taxi you know down to the South Ferry and they're clearly in a real taxi and Milligan just like shoves the camera in the back seat with them and so they're backlit horribly and the, the shot is crooked mm-hmm. and yeah there's something kind of documentary like and the fact that it actually stars these two real porn stars makes it feel like because so the relationship between them, it's a lot to swallow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very contrived, but the fact that it's shot in this way with these people under these circumstances, you know, you you can see that there's something real in this story of squalid people searching for redemption.
0: Well, I would say that like that immediacy and Milligan's patented style is already like head and shoulders over most porn directors even trying to do this mm. kind of sexploitation thing. Mm. Like he was working with the budgets and technical equipment that most pornos uh, utilize if not less so. Mm. And I think that as a storyteller, he's head and shoulders above most of them that are considered like, ah, the great porn di- directors other than like Radley Metzger and stuff like that. Sure. which were, Who are on a completely different
1: level well his uh, scripts are certainly more loquacious than most <laughs> yes. foreign directors
0: I mean <laughs> very Matt Farley-ish again
1: <laughs> yeah just just long, long I mean he is a theater theater director to his core mm-hmm. eventually his work with Michigan dried up I did dip into one of the movies he made later in life. Monstrosity! That's right. Good
0: luck! <laughs> yeah, he,
1: so he made three movies, or actually four movies in the 80s, including The Weirdo and Surge a Kill, which was his last one. Monstrosity he shot in LA, and he has certain kind of like punk aesthetics in it it's a frankenstein story and
0: he's trying to make like a goofy horror comedy which is like kind of out of his wheelhouse and you don't feel he's very comfortable with it it's like i just want to make something that'll sell some tickets please
1: yeah he's not good when he's actually trying to be funny no he's not and also it's just competent enough like he has a bit of a crew making monstrosity that's right because that's the one that jimmy mcdonough worked on right that's right i listened to a bit of the jimmy mcdonough commentary on it And McDonough said, well, this was kind of a bittersweet day because uh, Andy Milligan actually hired a special effects artist to do these gore effects. Normally, it used to just be him. Mm. It's like... Yeah, you know, when you get more competent technicians working on your film, basically you've just got a bad film.
0: <laughs> so you think that if it was just mannequin hands, there'd be more charm there. Yeah,
1: and again, he's trying to be funny. Which,
0: and, like, he didn't you know. like shooting on 35mm either. He, he didn't like the aesthetic of it. He did it, like, once before as well. He liked a 16mm optical sound sync camera Getting that's, like, in one there. second off. Yeah. yeah. And when you take that away, I think that the thing that kind of endears us to him is gone.
1: surge kill which was his last movie and is a, Oof. it's kind of a police academy style comedy set oh, in a God. hospital. I've seen 10 minutes of it. It, it will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Andy Milligan, ugh, the end of his life is uh, not a pleasant time. Yeah, he died of AIDS in abject poverty. His remains were buried in an unmarked grave ugh. because he was too poor. Jimmy McDonough The biographer was one of, I think, only two people who knew of his diagnosis and became basically his caretaker Mm -hmm. in the last year of his life.
0: I mean, if it wasn't for Jimmy McDonough, like Nicholas Winding Reffin probably wouldn't have gotten the negatives and all the materials that allowed this kind of resurgence of his work because Andy Milligan has been suddenly like rediscovered. Companies like Code Red are putting most of his horror films out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Garage House Pictures is putting out insane special editions of his later period films like Monstrosity and uh, The Weirdo. And uh, Nicholas Winding Reffin again, is doing remasters
1: that he's putting for free online at buynwr.com. I think for anybody curious about Andy Milligan... Go to Vinegar Syndrome and get their Blu Ray of Fleshpot on Forty Second Street. Maybe also get their Blu Ray of Seeds. Yeah, some seeds in there as well. And if you don't like them, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yes, <laughs> be- because these are real minority we, tastes. We have
0: not undersold these movies. I <laughs> think we've been very honest
1: even, in their even, re- yeah. reality. Even these ones, the ones that are the best ones, yes. they may they may take you a little. They're 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 an acquired taste.
0: But. You know what? Uh, Jimmy McDonough's book, which has been out of print forever, is being re-released again by Fab Press. And read that book and you will become obsessed with the filmmaker. It's impossible not to once you get his whole life story. All right. So as per usual, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Elias Brander. And he goes, Hi when was the last time you cried while watching a movie is there anything specific in movies that often move you to tears or subjects that tend to affect you very emotionally i just recently realized I almost as a rule always cry when watching Miyazaki films and i'm not quite
1: sure why the one that makes me cry whenever i see it or that makes me uh, tear up or get a little get a little uh, emotional glenn or glenda Well, Glenn or Glenda. uh, Yeah, I I definitely get emotional. (laughs) I Uh, I don't I've not moved to tears. Okay, probably the man who shot Liberty Valance. (laughs) Really? Yeah, because that's a movie where for the whole first hour, for the whole first hour. That's a real
0: like dad take. Yeah. The only movie that makes me cry. And the other one is
1: Ford versus Ferrari. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. You know, the dirty dozen. Yeah.
1: But no, like the first hour of the man who shot Liberty Valance, like whenever I watch it, I keep thinking, wow, this is really corny because mm-hmm. uh, it's so full of all those scenes where it's like Jimmy Stewart is like, uh, now, now listen, <laughs> um, uh, the, const- the Constitution, it starts with we the people, <laughs> you know, it yeah. has dialogue like that. Um, but I don't know, there's a cumulative impact to it. I don't know. I'm just going to ramble and not make any sense. (laughs) But you just watch it and it makes you sad, like a tear down your eye. Well, because the emotions that it evokes are so complex. Mm. The fact that the Tom Donovan character played by John Wayne uh, becomes outmoded and uh, <laughs> it necessarily has to seed into the background, but is As that As opposed to uh,
0: me, who well, I'm like, yeah, get John Wayne out of here! It's oh. terrible now. No, I'm yeah, kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what movie makes me cry every time? The ending of Speed Racer. Mm, tear to my eye. It's a that last film. montage at the end, where the it's all about like art and why you do stuff and like why it's important in somebody's life. Just That is like pure cinema right there.
1: I got a bit emotional when I watched Nashville again recently. Uh, specifically the scene where there's the shooting at the parthenon at the end and the henry gibson character who spent the whole movie playing this big fish in a small pond that you know we must be doing something right Mm. to last 200 years that that guy who's like the most famous man in nashville so he's just a big fish in a small pond but then he like After the shooting, he heroically like grabs the mic and is like, now listen, listen, we can't have any of that. Keep singing. This isn't Dallas. This is Nashville. And what's so moving about that scene is he's a pathetic character. But in this one moment, he's been called upon to live up to the ideals he set for himself and he Mm. does it. Yeah. And that's very powerful to me. And it actually made me tear up a bit.
0: It's, you know, I mostly tear up, not usually at like stuff. Well, you know, I should be specific. I cry all the time during movies to the point that uh, my partner, Emily is like, are you crying at this? And I'm like, oh God, it's so sad. No, I just got something in my eye. But it's like, oftentimes like a happy cry will like get me like something very joyous and climactic about Mm. the movie will like get me very cathartic yeah cathartic that that's what really like gets those tear ducts
1: rolling the ending of it's a wonderful life has got me in the past Mm. you know what really makes me
0: cry is the ending of don't let the river beast get you just tears (laughs) of laughter rolling down my cheeks
1: (laughs) Have you ever laughed so hard during a movie that you've cried? Oh yeah, uh, Borat. When I saw that in the theater, mm, the, I think the that, naked wrestling scene was yeah, maybe right. the hardest I've ever. I'm laughed. trying
0: to think. Like Anchorman uh, made me laugh so hard that my friends thought I was like dying, mm. and it was the whole crazy like fight scene. Right, and that didn't make me laugh that much. What made me laugh is it just did cuts of them like sitting back and they're like, you know, that escalated quickly. Like there was a guy with a net, and I was like, oh my god. Also. Team America World Police when he has the beard and he's like, oh, my God, that's (laughs) funny. I was just laughing. So it's what gets me is like the dumbest thing in the world when it comes to comedy. That will make me laugh and Mm -hmm. laugh and laugh. Mm -hmm. All right. So the next question is from a past email writer, Bennett G. And he goes, hi, guys, it's me again. Since my last email, I had a consultation about getting my tattoo, the one of Woody Allen, removed. Oh, oh, I remember this.
1: This is we made a joke on an earlier podcast about regrettable people to get tattoos of and mentioned Woody Allen. And then this gentleman, Bennett, uh, emailed us to mention that he did, in fact, have a Woody Allen tattoo. (laughs)
0: And they told him it would cost 800 big ones and eight months of treatment. Guess I'll be covering it up with a black box. <laughs> but you'll always know it's under there.
1: So how that is what I'd like to know. How recognizable is it as Woody Allen? Can you, you say know it's, it's Woody Allen? Okay, Can you say it's Rick Moranis? Hmm. Just I would, a tip.
0: I, it sounds like he probably got the cartoon like um Woody Allen from like the comic strips Oh yeah, because okay. that is like the tattoo go-to. Isn't that crazy that Woody Allen had a, like a, had a syndicated comic strip? Yeah. comic strip. What if he just wrote like Rick Moranis underneath? <laughs> <laughs> he would know. People yeah. would
1: look at it and be like, "That's like Wino forever." <laughs> yeah,
0: I, don't, I forgot. I think it's on one of his butt cheeks too.
1: Right? Oh, perfect. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you could say that it's like you going against Woody Allen, that's why it's there. Think anybody has any Kevin Smith tattoos? There must be a million. Oh, I'm people. sure
1: people have Kevin Smith tattoos. So he's gonna cover the tattoo of the black box. Well, another victim of cancel culture.
0: <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> what is this? Michael and us, your your character's coming out. William, uh I don't know what your middle name is. <laughs> F Buckley. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> So the next question is from Mark Hamilton, and he asks, Do you believe that there is such a thing as an artistically irredeemable movie? After hearing your valiant efforts to find the positive aspects in the worst direct from the asylum, or entirely inept shot-on-video efforts, I'm wondering if there are movies that you have seen that are too poorly made and insulting to your intelligence to even attempt to defend. My personal choice for movies that meet that criteria are both unwatchable Blair Witch Project parodies, The Hip Hop Witch with Eminem and Vanilla Ice, and The Bogus Witch. With the Wheeze himself, Polly Shore. <laughs> Is there an act of putting images on film or video, even if done with barely any care or thought, enough to justify considering something like the hip hop witch as an artistic object? Is there an acceptable threshold of badness that a film can fall below where you cannot consider it as art? Thanks, Mark.
1: Well, I don't think we're just like knee-jerk apologists for everything. I yeah. think we did a Poly Shore episode, <laughs> and I think there were movies on there where it's like
0: <laughs> All of his movies. We were like, we don't understand Polly Shore. But
1: we give here's the thing we give every movie movie either day in court
0: that's right yeah <laughs> it's you know the old argument of like isn't everything art sure but is it art that like we think that people should experience that's a whole different matter i
1: will say that there are many movies that i do find irredeemable mm. and and just awful and terrible uh and and not worth not worth the effort of defending but i would also say that movies are constantly changing because movies don't exist in a vacuum so the Bogus Witch Project, starring Polly Shore, <laughs> I guarantee is slightly more interesting now. Just because we are 20 years removed from the Blair Witch phenomenon, 30 years removed from the Poly Shore phenomenon, and therefore it's a historic object.
0: <laughs> I'm fascinated that this letter writer took offense with two Blair Witch parodies. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> What about uh, thumb Witch or whatever the Blair Thumb Project? Uh, the, the Steve Oderkirk yeah.
1: film. I'm not going to defend the Blair <laughs> <No>. Thumb. <laughs>
0: but, you know, just like Henri Langlois of the Cinematech, you can't start deciding what is art or what is not art because then you have... Like the Annie Milligan issue, which is most of his films just got
1: tossed out. I think everything could potentially be redeemed. Mm. I mean, not everything's going to be a good movie, but everything is going to be at least slightly interesting if put in the right context.
0: I'm holding out for that Corky Romano revival. <laughs> Corky
1: Romano is endlessly fascinating. <laughs>
0: All right, so those are our letters for this week. Uh, If you'd like to send us some for next week, it's importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. So this week on our Patreon, we're talking about all the new movies that have been coming out.
1: We're talking about big new blockbusters, the first blockbusters of the year. We're going to talk about Bad Boys for Life, and we're also going to talk about Birds of Prey. And the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn.
0: <laughs> oh, that's right. I'm like, we're talking about a third movie? Oh no, that's just a long title. <laughs> that's right.
1: So, uh, yeah, we wanted to see what are the what are the big hits? What are the?
0: I'm interested in diving into the research you did in January, where you went to go see almost all of the January release films. Yeah, let's uh, let's. So talk we're also about going it. to throw that on the fire. And if you want to give that a listen, five dollars a month, Patreon.com/slash/TheImportantCinemaClub. So next week we're getting serious. With a bunch of comedians. Yes, that's right. Um, it's been requested that we do comedians again because we did it a long time
1: ago. We did comedians who failed at at movies. <laughs>
0: yes. And while we could do that again, we're deciding to go down a bit of a different path. And we're going to talk about comedians who tried dramatic roles. Uh, tried, I say, like, sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not, and we'll be talking about Patton Oswald. he was a Big Fan and a Young Adult,
1: yeah. and we'll also be talking about Richard Pryor. With his Paul Schrader film, Blue Collar. hmm And we may talk about another one, too.
0: Yeah, we want to find a more, um, classic Hollywood person, but we just need to
1: figure out who that is first. I'm trying to sell Justin on Bob Hope <laughs> and the Seven Little Foy's.
0: You know what? Uh, I'll say the same thing you said about somebody else. I don't know what I would have to say about the, <laughs> <laughs> a dramatic artistry of Bob hope <laughs> yeah fair
1: enough I'm not sure I know either
0: <laughs> alright so that's what we're doing next week so until then I'm Justice Clue I'm Will thanks for listening Will, it was the biggest Night in Hollywood yesterday. It was the grand finale of On Cinema Oscar
1: special. <laughs> I haven't watched it yet, but Ooh, I'm looking forward to it.
0: gets dark. <laughs> you didn't hear about that? Don't spoil it. All right, I won't spoil it. Do you watch it in its entirety? Yeah. Like all two and a half hours? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You are a madman. <laughs> I love every second of it. So you watched the Oscars suicidally in a public place. Yeah. Did you have a fun time? I did have a fun time. That's good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, with the caveat that the, that the Oscars... I find it increasingly depressing as I get older. Mm. Um, because you know, and I'll the th- sparkle falls away from your eyes. Or? Yeah, like I'm actually getting to a point where I'm starting to find the Oscars kind of like actually unpleasant to watch. And I'll tell you why. I've been trying to I've been trying to figure it out. It's because when you watch the Oscars, this is the film industry saying to you, "This is what movies are, mm-hmm. and this is what this is the image we want to project of movies." Now. This year's list of winners, I thought, had some good things in it. But good, bad, doesn't matter. It's the Oscars. What matters is just the show in total and the message that the show is delivering you about movies, which are, this is the proper cinema... And this is the, the these are the areas of cinema that we are interested in and therefore that you should be interested in, which is nothing too old, it's nothing too off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of amazing that Parasite.
0: <laughs> well, that's true. the
1: thing, right? Is that like that's what you take
0: away from this Oscar event. And that's. Oh, anybody will be talking about. Another Joker won an Academy Award? Who cares? Yeah. As people have said, like, it's a Oscar for You Were Never Really Here, which was uh, a better performance, I would say, than the showy one in The Joker.
1: But, like, an example of why the Oscars, I find it kind of depressing, is you, that montage they did about scenes f- that had music in them. Insanity. Where it was just like, oh, here's a scene from Footloose and Back to the Future yep. and Moulin Rouge. And I counted and there were two clips in that montage from before 1980. Yep, that's right. And that's the kind of, and even when they do a montage of like actual film history, it's just like, oh, there's Gone with the Wind.
0: Uh, you know what? I think the Oscar producers have taken your note. More montages. <laughs> Montages suck! I saw a lot of people complaining about that, that they're like, there were no uh, old clips. I'm like, no montages! Nobody wants to watch this! Montages
1: do suck, but yeah, I don't know, It just, it's just like the Oscars is something that has no interest in film as a medium with a history, and it has no interest in film as what a are you talking about? The uh world.
0: Tom Hanks came out to introduce that museum that's going to have like a Jaws statue and stuff like that. Yeah, it's going like to have that.
1: some ruby slippers in it. <laughs> yep. You know, the five old movies <laughs> that people know.
0: I mean, we talk about this all the time. Like, this podcast exists only to introduce people to stuff that they wouldn't hear about anywhere else. Yeah. We get you in with the Tom Cruise, and then we, you know, jump you with the Andy Milligan.
1: <laughs> so this is why I like our podcast and why I find the Oscars increasingly an unpleasant place to be. Mm-hmm. It's like... Watching the Oscars after doing this podcast for a year is like being told by the industry, okay, but this is what film actually is.
0: What do you say about foreign language film winning best picture for the second time after the artist? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's forgotten about that.
1: You're right. That was a French film.
0: It was a French film. It was distributed by the Weinsteins and they pushed it hard, but it was a foreign language film. It's just there wasn't any dialogue in it. So people could just ignore that, I guess. The
1: intertitles were English.
0: Oh, were they? Or were those re-edited? It was probably an original French version. Uh,
1: probably was sat in Hollywood Mm -hmm. has big, big American stars like John Goodman.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and uh, Jean Dujardin, Yeah. (laughs) Wolf of Wall Street um, and Lukey Luke himself.
1: (laughs) I will say that it was interesting that Parasite won Best Picture. I'm not going to be one of those people who who says that Oscar got it right or whatever because... I feel like you can't one year say that the Oscars don't matter and then the next year say the Oscars got it right. You know,
0: I've seen some arguments about that, which is like, when they get it right, it does matter to people discovering those films. When they get it wrong, it's like, eh, fuck them, it doesn't matter.
1: I guess that's a fair point. Yeah, I guess you want the movies you like to win so that more people will see them. And also... I I don't know. It's it's so stupid to care about the Oscars and yet every year when I watch it I start caring and and so when a movie like The Irishman gets completely shut out it's like fuck this this award show tricked me into caring whether or not The Irishman gets anything.
0: <laughs> I was not invested in The Irishman winning any awards. I'm a real legacy kind of guy that yeah. if someone's w- won awards, give it to somebody new. <laughs> sure,
1: I respect I respect that.
0: <laughs> like Parasite, which won a ridiculous amount of awards, much to the bafflement of uh, its casting crew.
1: If we are to play along and say that anything about the Oscars matters, I think it's nice that Parasite won a lot of awards, just because on the game show level, it's fun to see. A surprise thing happened Yes, it's like, oh, this adds interest to the ceremony, and also because the Oscars was not set up to honor Korean genre cinema. Mm-hmm. So when some when something like you know there have been twenty years of great, exciting, vibrant Korean cinema, and for <laughs> yeah, that to
0: lots of films,
1: and, and for that to suddenly penetrate the Oscars at the highest level is an interesting development. The idea of a foreign language movie like Parasite. Uh, forget about the artist because it passes as an American movie yeah it does but the idea of a foreign language movie actually winning best picture seems to me like something that couldn't have happened 20 years ago even though Crouching Tiger and Life is Beautiful were nominated but like they were never they were never actually going to win best picture no and I think the fact that Parasite actually won speaks to so many huge seismic shifts that are happening in the film industry Mm -hmm. like you know, maybe Hollywood has become less culturally chauvinist simply because like the legacy studios have crumbled and they're all owned by big international conglomerates and like like there's no there's no legacy film industry in Hollywood to be protective of anymore.
0: I mean Parasite beat like the love letter to Seventies Hollywood once upon a time in Hollywood that in any other year, would have swept those yeah. awards,
1: <laughs> but it's like the old Oscars that Billy Crystal used to host, and Jack and Warren were in the front row, like that seems like kind of an old guard- like that that's that's back when there were you had your Warner Brothers and your Universal, and they made movies. Uh, at at Oscar like like studios don't make Oscar movies anymore
0: well the thing is it's all about platforms like Netflix where Mm. I can walk into the living room of my friend and his daughter is watching a Korean uh, soap opera which would have been unimaginable for uh, like us when we were 12 yeah. where would we have seen
1: it <laughs> yeah like i could just imagine parasite coming out 20 years ago and like billy crystal making yellow like face jokes, jokes yeah. at the oscar like hey uh, parasite's just like chinese food i wanted more after i saw it you know like that kind of that's what the oscars would have been 20 it years ago it would have <laughs> um, but but yeah the world is the world is smaller than it was 20 years ago mm-hmm.
0: and you pointed out that somebody got real snubbed on the Oscar memoriam.
1: Oh yeah, every year during the Oscar in memoriam montage, I have in my head one or two names that I wanna see, and I'm almost always disappointed. So
0: I'm curious to know how their system works, because when I worked at the Canadian Screen Awards, to get into the in memoriam, you had to apply for that to happen. Interesting. So it wasn't just an automatic, like you just picked everybody that died, which could explain why some people were not on the Oscar in memoriam
1: kind of thing you think kirk douglas's family applied yes i think they just put they just put because you can't not have Kirk I mean, he's,
0: in it. I mean, he's, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to make excuses for yeah. them. I'm just saying that that's the system that the way it goes forward. Uh, point, we didn't even mention the name. The oh, point Larry
1: Cohen. Larry Cohen was not included in the death montage and I actually thought he would be. He's, because, he's pretty
0: famous though. Like he was writing big Hollywood scripts. Yeah, like... he
1: wrote movies for Sidney Lumet and Joel Schumacher. Yeah. you know, in addition to his many own contributions to cinema. Yeah, I was sad to see Larry Cohen not included. Who doesn't love Larry Cohen? Uh,
0: monsters, that's who. But
1: we got a few extra shots of Billie Eilish. Uh, <laughs> that's right. And I think Larry would understand. But this is exactly the sort of thing that makes me like, angry. angry and hate mm-hmm. the Oscars because it's the Oscars to be like, yeah, that's that's not the real stuff." Did
0: you have any other names that actually did show up or was Larry Cohen the one that you're like, where
1: is he? I guess I was happy to see Terry Jones in there. I wasn't <laughs> necessarily expecting him to be there. Yeah, and
0: you wonder would you have been that angry if Terry Jones wasn't there? It seems like more... Of an affront to somebody like Larry Cohen or Dick Miller, yeah. Or...
1: Because Terry Jones wasn't really in the American film yeah. industry,
0: or uh, Toby Hooper wasn't even included in the in
1: memoriam. Oh, shit. Yeah. So Sid Haig was overlooked this year. I'm not shocked by that, but oh, it would Sid have been, Haig wasn't in have there. Been nice to have Sid Haig. Yeah.
0: The Oscars suck. That's what I fear. That that's our final position, right? Yeah, fuck it. Yeah. Until next year, when we get Oscar fever again. <laughs>